You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. How's it going, everybody? Nice to hear from you again. Well, not nice to hear from you. It's nice for you to hear from me today. Uh, and I, yeah, I mean that seriously as it's a privilege. I'm not make, really making it as funny, I guess. But it's a privilege to get to be heard. And I, I take it very seriously and I'm very thankful for it. So if you've listened to the show at all, great. Uh, thank you so much. If you're new, even better. So it's, it's all good. Uh, this show is brought to you by Broadcast Supply Worldwide. They sponsor this studio, pay my rent, uh, help me gear, get gear. It's where I buy all my gear. It's the same as if you bought it on any other online retailer, even some of the big ones, except for it's better because a couple of reasons. One, it, one, their prices are great, competitive, or as low as anybody's out there. The website is great. Uh, if you spend $100, 90, over $99, you get free shipping, so that's great. And also, you get 10% off if you use my promo code DOWN uh, to, for any item in the podcasting uh, category, anything that would be used for broadcast podca- podcast stuff like that uh, at all. And they're a great company, people I really like, sports the show, all that. So broadcast supply worldwide, bswusa.com. Okay, I have a band called Emory, and a lot of y'all know that, but I also have a band that, that Toby and I did together, and we came up with a clever name, Matt and Toby, to release a bunch of music that is uh, just wasn't Emory, stuff we had written that didn't seem like it was going to be released by Emory, so we put out a record a few years ago, and we've taken to doing another record, and this one is I'm really excited about, and it'll be... I'll have some music for you at some point on that. And the great news about it is we're going to have new music and a new tour. We're going to be on tour in basically in May with the Classic Crime. So we're going to do a show in Seattle on April 27th. Tickets are available for that now. That was going to be a good one. And then we're flying to the East Coast and going to do a bunch of stuff uh, starting May 4th. You can go to theclassiccrime.com and... Uh, Please come out to those shows. Support that. See some of our new music. See us play in a different way. The classic crime is great. And Civilian is also going to be on those shows. So I believe that they will be really, really good. Uh, And also... We are going to do a little VIP thing. We're going to be driving our bus around. So Toby and I are going to have 10 VIPs if they want to come hang out with us on the bus before the show. So that'll be fun. We could probably play some songs or chat or preview some of our new music to you. I don't know what, but that's a a neat thing to do. So please go to theclassiccrime.com and we hope to meet people in person instead of all this podcast, MP3, music downloading business. We're trying to keep it real and uh, interact with you guys for real because it's pretty fun to play shows and perform and meet people. So let's, uh, let me tell you about who's coming on the show today. I don't need much intro for Tim. Tim is from Under Oath, Tim McTague. Um, I've had him on the show twice, so this will be his third time, and more than his third time, he's going to come on four more times on the next on the following Thursday. So I think we'll have Tim every week on Thursdays, and we're going to do what we do when we get together, which is discuss maybe a little bit more deeper or philosophical-minded things about music and maybe some petty things, too. But uh, Tim is a natural conversationalist. He's a, he's a brilliant guy, and he's focused, and he's driven, and he's just he's out there. He's doing stuff. He's, he's living. He's very in the moment, and he's just very engaging to talk to. So I hung out with him a couple times earlier this week when Under Oath was in town, uh, and you know we just get carried away talking. So but we're going to limit this to about 45 minutes, but we'll do it uh, multiple weeks, and I hope you you'll enjoy the conversations that, that we have. I learn a lot when I talk to him and I consider things that I hadn't. Uh, and that's really what 
Overall, I hope you're enjoying the format of this podcast. It's kind of become clear to me that what this podcast is for is for me to learn, and then I hope for you to learn, but it's to be stimulated and to learn. And those are things that, you know, there's a lot of ways that people think they need to learn, and it's through your third grade teacher or whatever, but there's better ways than that to learn and be stimulated. Um, And I'm not claiming to be an educator, but I'm just saying you can vicariously enjoy, I think conversation is a great way to learn, essentially, whether listening to it or engaging in it. And so that's why I do this. And I want to talk to people that are going to stimulate and interest me. And then I probably learn something from, or at least learn a deeper truth about something that I may already know. So I'd encourage everybody to be an avid consumer of things that help you learn and to be stimulated. And uh, that's why I'm doing the show every day of the week. And that's why I like talking to people like Tim. So here we go. Thank you, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Tim, you're in a parking garage. I am. What parking garage are you in? Los Angeles. It's oh, so you already got down to LA. Yeah, man. Just arrived this morning. It's pretty wild out here. Okay, so I saw you, just to give people some context, and we'll talk about your show, but I just saw you up in Seattle just about four days ago. You're already making your way down the West Coast. Yeah, man. This is quite- good hang in Seattle. Oh, sure. yeah. Yeah, I saw you a couple days in a row. It's really cool that, to, that you're doing this on Skype and, and just no headphones and right there and you could walk around and show us LA if you want to. It's pretty neat. Yeah. You know, for pretty the video wild. version of this though. So, oh my gosh, I'm just going to have to, I don't, I feel, I would feel uncomfortable starting any other way than telling people how uh, impressed and moved I was with the Under Oath show I saw this week. I, and I told you that the night of, I don't know if you believe me or not, but do you? You did tell me and I didn't believe you. But you I don't? Appreciate- do, do you believe that I'm sincere when I'm telling you that's the best I've ever seen Under Oath? Dude, that's awesome. I, I, or is I that an insult? People have said that on this tour, so that's really uh, it's really encouraging. It's their biggest fear is losing whatever that magic was that connected people, you know? Yeah. And it's cool to hear that like we still have it or even have something more than it now, which is really cool. Well, you know, is that is there any way you would take that as an insult when you're playing for some big crowd after all these years and seeing you a million times that that this would be your better show? Or would you rather hear that, man, when I saw you at CMJ in 03, it was just so raw? No, no I mean, I think, I think it's cool. I think that it's funny when people – I think people aren't used to seeing bands progress mm-hmm. in a possible way for 10, 12, 15 years. So we've gotten a couple dudes. I can't believe that. Like, oh, you yeah. guys still got it. You know, kind of like they thought we weren't going to be good, but then they were so impressed <laughs> that we were. Um, and then, you know, and then there's other people like you that are like, dude, I've seen you, you know, 20, 30 times. And like, that was by far more than the that. most like intense or tight or uh, emotional time I've ever seen you, which is, you know, all those compliments are good. And yeah, I mean, our goal is always to be better than we were last year. You know, do you like it better though, or do you feel like the small, you know, small like eight hundred, one thousand size is more fun? No, I actually really like it. I think that you know the bigger picture is like really just the amount of effort it takes to be in the band. You know, Um, it's just the longer our sets are, the more tired you get, and we, you know, we still beat the hell out of ourselves and. 
um, that's kind of a thing where even if you say, yeah, I'm just going to take it easy tonight, like after that first song hits, you're just like off and gone and kind of on the adrenaline wave. And mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, I think the bigger stages allow for more movement, allow for more, uh, I guess, performance maybe. Yeah. Um, but overall, man, yeah, I, I like all clubs. I mean, I, I love 500 cap rooms. I love 5,000 cap rooms. I think we're playing uh, 8,000 or 10,000 tonight in L.A. So oh, my it's just gosh. Like, yeah, I don't know what, ridiculous. What, the, what, what the pre-sale is, but it, I think the Shrine's 5,000, and that sold out like a month ago, so then they moved it to the Shrine outside. It just looks like Warped Tour out here. It's wild. That that's just too much. I mean, it's just, there's something about that's so powerful, and some bands don't do that well on that big stage. Like I was just thinking the whole time, I was like, if 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 Emory had the opportunity to do this show and had that slot, I don't think we could do it well. I just don't think there's a way we could do it well. Like at least not what you got. Like what you do and where Spencer's at and being powerful and the light show and what it is. You know, I always saw our bands have some similarities or similar genre, or whatever. But I really can't imagine us pulling that off and it being good and on a big stage like that. I really can't. Yeah, but I think I think it's a learning curve too because I mean I think the first show or two we were kind of getting the grip of the crowd and, and realized like nobody was coming to see us or if they were it was like their first time so they don't know how what to do and how to act and they're a younger fan. Yeah. And we realized like it's not that anyone isn't having fun, it's that they don't know how to have fun and what to do. So then we started integrating more like intentional engagement you know everyone put your hands up go like this yeah. everyone jump like yeah stuff like that is very it almost feels easy at first but then you realize like the feedback you get from that and now all of a sudden we're doing the thing that normally naturally happens at an under oath show it's like cool so i think by the yeah. time you saw seattle spencer had kind of really leaned into not just being the front man of a band but kind of conducting a crowd as well yeah i yeah i've never and seen him do that band. before like that right? i looked like he was born for it but i saw it yeah it's a, it's a weird thing because like we don't come from that scene where you know you have to conjure up emotion and conjure up movement it just naturally happens or it doesn't yeah and th- this younger crowd's just so different they want like communion and they want to speak to you and speak be spoken to instead of just we're gonna headbang with our backs to you like go ahead and get your nose broken real quick in the mosh pit so yeah i don't think it's better or worse it's just different we had to very quickly learn the difference but i think we've leaned into it and still kept an under oath thing alive with that with uh also kind of not catering but learning this audience and winning them over in the way that they need to be won over which is different than 10 years ago is it it is a little cheesy on some level though to say everybody put your hands up bob your head like this you know that kind of stuff but it certainly works but did you find it cheesy at first like you said did you have to get over that or were you glad when he finally started doing it i think that it, it it feels cheesy to the to the person to the us i don't think it ever on an outside level looks or feels Mm-mm. any type of way i think it's more just we're not used to doing it and it's like doing anything it's probably the equivalent of you know uh integrating a new thing into your sex life that's you know super normal but weird and new to you and it's like oh, okay like let's try that and then a month later it's like oh that new thing that we do now it's fine it's kind of like that <laughs> i like, like that analogy we we hit we hit a normalcy really quick and just realized like oh that's a new component new component of our dynamic yeah definitely the um 
And then I guess the other aspect to that is I wonder what people think about it if they realize that you wind up essentially on stage, at least as a front man, saying the same thing every night in the same breaks. Do you think people that you think that people understand that? I mean, it's like a, it's as old as Spinal Tap to do to do that, you know, not know what city you're in and repeat their own city or whatever it is. But yeah. do, do you think that's officially the best way to go is to have a basic formula of what you're going to say between what songs every night? Is that part of your set or is it, you know, should it be more organic I than think- that? Yeah, I think that Spencer's more formulaic. I think he's, if you saw free shows on the tour, you'd probably see 90% of the same calls to actions at the same times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for the rest of us, that gets counterbalanced with, you know, more organic stuff as far as, you know, am I facing Aaron? Is Chris playing the drums here? Uh, how are we reacting to each other? I think every stage and every crowd does dictate the show. But I think from the microphone, it's generally the same spots because we only have a few moments where we can even do that. So it's not really, uh, it's not like we, we can choose your own adventure every night. It's kind of like we have 50 minutes and we have five or six really big moments. And like, if you miss them, it's not like you'll do something else. It's just you miss the moment. So we maximize everything we can. And yeah, I think it is interesting. Um, but I think for calls to action, for performing, it's it's acceptable. I think when it becomes this thing where artists are telling like a sob story and in between a song and they cry at the exact same point. <laughs> and they're talking about like, you know, their sick parent or their first girlfriend and what the song's about. Like, I think when you get to that level, when you become like theater, yeah. I think that's a little like sad. To, um, but when you're just like, get the fuck up or whatever yeah. you're doing, like you know, Bear Tooth says the same thing every night, you know, uh, you know, Bring Me the Horizons is the same thing every night. And it's just, it's we, we're honing the performance. It's the same song. We're just getting better and better at playing it, type of thing. Yeah, it's a production in itself. I got two things that came to mind when you said that about the the artificial tears and the acting on that. We were we were tour had an opening band for us that we had taken out one time, and he did this monologue about. I think it might have been, both of these might be where they were doing something for charity, like it was a cause that was they were connected to, and they would give the yeah. speech every night. But the band was, I won't say what band it was, it was a dorky band that we didn't really like a ton um, overall, but they were okay. And they, the lead singer would do the speech every night, and it's all the other bands and all of us, we all had it totally memorized, and we'd say it to each other, and we'd call each other up right now and say, and this, and I, w- I won't even betray it at all, but we, we could recite the guy's whole speech yeah. um, and everything and he would do it so dramatically and have the same emphasis every night and it was just so funny to listen to and then I tell you who else does that really yeah. well is Stephen from Amberlin he would he would put it on when we did the first Tooth and Nail tour they had a, I think oh, yeah. for World Vision he would give a World Vision speech and it was just like on another level of calculated yeah. performance that I've ever, ever seen he's so good at it you're like what the hell are you talking about yeah I mean it sounds very sincere when deliver it'd be like if somebody from a movie you liked if you had Brad Pitt come and de- walk into the room with you every day and deliver lines from Legends of the Fall and you'd be like it would just be super weird because it seems so powerful and real when you hear it the first time and then you know, yeah. it's the same every night Mel Gibson walks in every morning with a cup of coffee they'll never take our freedom Is that, exactly and just, like that doesn't it's not the same anymore. Yeah, not the yeah. same impact after a bunch of times. <laughs> no, we, we were on tour with the band, uh, same thing. Like, I won't necessarily say anything, but he, uh, they're really good friends of ours, and they're a massive band, and we were out with them, and he, the singer, would uh, fall into a character, like a 
like a southern draw character. Mm-hmm. And he would, you know, and he'd always have this thing where he would say something that he'd stutter and then he'd say it again. Like that. Like he had the stutter programmed into his Yeah, speech. like Matt and Reba. I said, I said Matt and Reba. Like, <laughs> and, and, and then he'd do that. And he'd kind of bow to the crowd and the whole place would explode. And it's just like so sick. But then every once in a while you're like, oh, here it comes. And you can kind of do the... And it's just like within two degrees, you nail it every night because it's yeah. the same thing. But yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's just performance, man. I mean, I think in a basement hardcore show, it's different and different things are yes. going to get knocked out of tune and things like that. And I think that's what people like. Sorry, there's an ambulance. No problem. By. That's what artists like you and I miss because we come from that world. And it's like, man, like, why is everyone on digital amps and auto tuning, you know, guitars and wirelesses and light shows it just doesn't it doesn't feel real and i think you know you can make that real and the difference is like some bands need production to sustain themselves because they can't Uh put on a show and i think for bands you know like us let live every time i die things like that like the lights the banners the pyro if we ever can afford to have it or anything like that is really just going to accentuate what we do Mm -hmm. and we use it as like an extra garnish on the cocktail that is what we do versus having it be very production forward and just us being anyone in front of anything. And I think that that's the difference is a lot of people are, you know, not really paying attention to the bands anymore because there's so much going on where for us, like we always want to be the focus and we just want things to accentuate our vision. So it's just a different totally. way of doing it. I don't think either that's way totally, is right yeah. or wrong. It's just a different way. Yeah, because I've seen you guys on the small stage, and that's really good in its own way, too. But it's really amazing that you have the ability to, to adapt like that. Let me back up real quick before we get to what else we want to talk to. But you mentioned that some of those production things off the top of your head, digital amps, whatever. You said auto-tuning guitars. Is that, is that a thing? Are people tuning their guitars in real time live? How's that work? Uh, yeah, so we were just uh, in L.A. at a recording studio, and this dude had a bridge in his guitar called an Evertune. Yep. And it's tension based, so you basically string the guitar, you adjust with a micro adjustment exactly where you want it to stay, and then it remembers the tension. And you can literally beat the hell out of this guitar and bend the note all the way up, and it would not change. You can make it where you, you can make the guitar where your bending doesn't change the pitch. Exactly. You have to make, you have to almost break the thing and have its like reaction time be have latency just so when you bend it actually bends and i would go like yeah i would bend, it would give me one one thousand and then adjust and go right back to two and even so though there still- is a time frame for that i mean you can it, i mean that seems super weird that you want to be able to pull on the strings a little bit and make it sound have some yeah character. you'd be surprised though they don't, they don't and i mean it's like and that's the whole thing is like now even a bad guitar player can sound perfectly in tune all the time but so I like the like, natural part of way I mo- pull on the strings. Like even within a chord, I I I'll bend my one finger just to give that. I mean, I want it to say, I want to hear that. I can I can control like it. Yeah. yeah, I like it. I mean, I, I like for my guitar to be in tune. Don't get me wrong, but I like to put character into. I will pull on purpose in certain chords on certain notes. I mean, I'll vibrate over the two strings right here and hold down the other one. You know, I like that. Totally. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's kind of, again, where I come from, but it's just an interesting thing where, you know, pretty soon you won't even be able to need to play anything. And it's yeah. just, it's a, I think it's a really cool 
uh, time to be alive in that because there's a lot of people that have really good ideas in their brain but don't have the musical ability. So I love that. That's true. You know, auto tune and Ableton and things like that are allowing you know mind geniuses that aren't talents, quote unquote geniuses, mm -hmm. actually flex their mind and become talented, um, which I think is really really important. And I think that's a, just a different talent. It's not like cheating. And then there's the whole other purist in me that's just like, man, like plug in, like take your electronics out and throw your pedals away and just turn up and let's go. Yeah. You know, what do you um, play in amp wise? You're not playing digital amp, are you? No, I play uh, orange dual terror uh, through a Janus 212. And then, uh, yeah, I have like four pedals. I have a pog pedal, um, octave pedal, and then I have a TS9 and then I have a Strymon delay and reverb and that's it. You have a Strymon delay and a Strymon reverb? Yeah, the Big Sky and the Timeline. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. they're sick. Yeah, they're I have two Strymons too. I have the Flint reverb and the El Capistan delay. And that's that's basically, yeah, I use those it, constantly. It's all new to me because it's kind of the reverse of what you guys are doing and not because I disagree with what you're doing. If we could, man, I would love to one day have or have ever been the size of your band and get the opportunity to put together a big show and have lights and budget. And, you know, I, I mean, we played that crowd that we saw you with, for instance, was... I was struck by, I don't know what it was in Seattle, but I'm going to guess it was five or 6,000 people. 5,000, do you think? Yeah, I think it was six, uh, six, I don't, yeah, I, was over, I think a little over 6,000. Yeah, that, so the biggest crowd I've ever played for indoors was in Sydney, Australia. It was the story of the year, and it was about exactly that size. It was 5,000 people, and it was just, it was hilarious. Like, we weren't prepared for it or knew, knew how to even handle it, but it's like, uh, it's just an unbelievable feeling to see. And I've I played for that many people at a festival or outdoor or at Warp Tour or something like that, but it's not the same thing just being in a room with 5,000 people or 7,000 people, whatever it is. And it's just the craziest, craziest thing. You feel this, like, primal power. Like, it's scary almost. It's like, whoa, I'm, like, you feel power in the sense that, I don't, it's like this tangible, palpable energy of power. And it almost scares me. It's, like, intimidating. Like, I'm like, whoa. You know, it just, it's kind of almost overwhelming and I'm sure addictive too. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, I mean, there's even a lot of studies on that, right? Like mm -hmm. group, group think, mm -hmm. um, you know, even like churches, like uh, I was talking to one of my friends, the worship leaders, like, you know, they teach you in worship uh, school that there's like, supposedly there's worship school. He's never gone to it, but he was just like talking about how contrived the whole thing is. He's like, there's certain keys that are, universally like scientifically proven that are out of the average person's range and when uh -huh. someone has to reach really high yeah their oxygen levels get weird and they release endorphins and they feel like an experience uh-huh and if you can actually get 400 or 4,000 people in a church to all be releasing endorphins at yeah. the same time there's an energy that even scientifically happens between just matter that it becomes powerful and mm -hmm. then you feel the Holy Spirit move or you don't and you feel the vibe of the room or it's all happening at the same time. Um, I don't feel a way about it, either of those things one way or another, but it's a really interesting thing to realize that these things that feel so pure and so natural are actually very scientifically placed in that key and in that register sitting you right next to this other person mm -hmm. to create this bigger thing. And I think that's what happens more naturally in like a setting like Seattle or a setting like LA tonight, it's like when you have 7,000 people singing the same word, like there's something that happens. Like there yeah. is like an electricity that happens. And I don't, I'm not a scientist, but man, it's, 
pretty impactful. Yeah, and it's weird because you talk about energy. It sounds like I'm saying, well, you know, like these crystals have an energy or an aura. It's not that. I'm sure that there is way more science to be done to actually explain it. But it's no, it, on some level, it's no different than interior decorating in a bar gives you a certain vibe and it's there. Yep. Only it's for 30 people. And there's certain dynamics if you do a group counseling session it, where it gets super weird if you have over eight people or a, a, a hundred people at a party feels a certain way uh and then at 150 you know people start being disrespectful and breaking shit at your house you know and it won't happen if there's 30 people at your house but it will if 100 people come to your house for a party you know it's just and there's just so many things in there that's crazy and how about this one see if this see what you make of this one more than 7,000 people will listen to this podcast but it it contains none of that energy. You know what I'm saying? Like, right now, I do not feel like, like if, I, if we had to do this on stage, me and you talk right now, and all the people that were going to listen to this podcast were, were, in, the audience. were, in, were sitting here, you, wouldn't, we wouldn't, you would just not be able to speak this way at all. We'd have to be saying, uh, you, would, and, uh, you, know, you would be speaking with this tone, and yeah. you couldn't help it. Like, no matter how hard you tried, or if you did, it would be the most boring, worst thing imaginable. But nonetheless, right. there, more people will listen to it. So it's not purely about the numbers. It's a, uh, it's it's like everybody that listens to the podcast is is an audience of one, but there's tens of yeah. thousands of them, but it's one at a time. It's really weird. Yeah. yeah, and I think like with music, it's different because there's an interaction where if you know we all like where that magic and that energy would happen is if we were in front of ten thousand people in a podcast uh, arena. And we were talking and there'd be no energy until I tell everyone that it's actually your birthday today. And we, I, we all want to sing Matt happy birthday. Oh, yeah. I say on three, everybody. Boom. Electricity. Because now yes. we're all doing the same thing together. And as soon yeah. as we're done, we're back to, you know, dicking around and talking about whatever we want to talk about. And they're just observers and they're not participators. So yeah. I think there will be those moments. And that's why I think comedy's similar to a podcast, but it's more electric because you're talking the group you're trolling the guy in the front row you're making books and you're all laughing together and it becomes this like electric thing and then you go back and watch the louis ck special of the night you were actually at and it's not as as impactful right not yeah because you're not there the group think the big wave of like yeah molecules is gone and there's not that energy and emotion it's just a really funny guy on a very small screen while you're in your bed about to fall asleep and it's not the same. That's right. So you could like a band live that you wouldn't like if you heard their recording and you'd be like, holy shit, that band was awesome. Then you go back home and listen to the recording like, yeah, whatever. Well, I think that's like the number one thing, right? I mean, you can't capture what Norma Jean did live on a record, even though Bless the Martyr did a very good job of doing it. Yeah. So you wait, hold on a second. I, I want to hear that thought, but you've, you've all, you already made a twist in it. Are you saying that the group part adds to what's going on, or are you saying that it's the fact that the medium can't capture what's actually there? There's two different things, I think. I think that there are records that feel real. Like, I think... Bless the Martyr, for one, at the drive-in relationship of command. I think that record sounds like human beings flipping out in a room. Um, I think, for instance, an Under Oath record sounds better than all of those albums. But you can tell it's not the same thing as a live show. Does an Under Oath, re- does an Under Oath record sound better than an Under Oath live show? I would 100% agree that Under Oath sounds better on record than live. 
and we feel different live than you'll ever get from a CD. And that's but like something. But the live show is still way better and more powerful than listening to a record, always. I agree. And, and I think that's really the thing is like, if people, you know, I see these bands and they're sitting there trying to nail their solos and they're not moving. And it's like, you haven't looked at your friends on your, in your band, anyone in the crowd. You've just been staring at your fretboard. If I wanted to hear you play perfectly, I'll just listen to the album. Yeah, watch a like, YouTube video something. if you do a playthrough. Then. <laughs> Let's do something. You know, yeah. you don't have to like, you don't have to jump in the crowd. You don't have to like curse a security guard out or pour beer all over your drummer or something stupid to like be entertaining. But you're not entertaining at all. So it's like, Under Oath's always been loud, out of tune. Sometimes our stops are a little, and that's mm-hmm. just the way it's ne- it's never gonna change. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we're really tight. I think, I think you're pretty tight, but yeah. Bands. Um, because just because we've been playing for so long, but I mean, if you if you were deaf and you watched us, I would imagine you would think that we're not nailing anything. And I think that's like a really good yeah. litmus test. Like, you know, if you lost one sense and all you could hear was, all you could do is hear our show, does it feel? Like, does it feel real? Do you feel like Aaron's beating the shit out of his drums? And I'm like yeah. wrecking my guitar because I care. Or do you feel like I'm performing for you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the same way, if you were deaf and only could see, like, are you? That's a are you great way to look at it. You, you feel that energy, and if you could nail both, uh-huh. you're the greatest band of all time. Well, there's something <laughs> wrong with that thought that says, "No, my job is a musician. I don't care about what I look like." But if so, don't get on a stage. At least <laughs> that's fine. If you, you know, it's fine for somebody yeah. to, to say my art is only the forty-four point one sixteen-bit file that I create. That is absolutely acceptable but don't pretend like if you do go to perform that the only thing there is audio don't don't act like i don't like that oh churches exactly. and the, the churches and sometimes are the worst like yeah don't wear those cargo shorts uh maybe lose a little weight to be honest you know sometimes like i think that's reasonable for a performer to think that way without being fake or artificial or something like that that's not really what it is but you have to yeah. understand you're engaging people's multiple senses in art if, if you choose to present the way that you art look. Yep. The way the room smells, it's the way the room feels. It's, it's not vanity. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really important. But which one's real? Is the CD real or is the performance real and the CD's a reflection of that? Because if you go through history, I, I have na- always natively think that the recording was the real thing because I was guilty of saying, I don't give a shit what I look like. What are you talking about? My job is to make music. Don't even ask me about an album cover because I'm not yeah. good with visual. I'm not a visual guy. I'm an audio guy, so I'm making these records. But when I look back over history, I realize, oh, recordings are this thing. Like Music's always been about performance. Always through all the ages for hundreds yep. of years, and they were doing chamber music and uh, theater music, and then they're doing. Uh, eventually, in the fifties and sixties, they started getting around microphones and trying to release soul records and put them on the radio. And then I grew up yep. in, in the time where it's like you make records, and all I ever did was listen to Nirvana and Soundgarden, and I never thought I would ever see them play, and I never did. Well, I mean, I could still see Soundgarden, but yeah, you know. So to me, the audio format was primary, but I, overall, I don't really think it is. Well, I think that, so here's the deal. I think uh, our old publicist uh, used to be married to this guy who worked for a company called, I think it was Blue Note Productions mm-hmm. or Glass Note. And uh-huh. It's an old jazz label. And he told me this story once. He's like, dude, like we would go to these old abandoned um, like gas stations in deep Mississippi where all of our artists were. We would sign these artists, but they wouldn't come to the studio. They didn't know how to do anything. And they wouldn't travel, 
but they do these things on Saturday nights where they do all night jazz and it's all improv mm -hmm. and it's for, he's literally for 12 hours and he was like in, you know, in Mississippi and in Alabama, like the way that stuff works is everyone stays up all night and does whatever they need to do, drink all night, like do Coke, whatever you got to do. And the only rule is that you better get your ass to church in the morning, which uh -huh. I thought was really, really interesting. Um, but what was even more interesting is like, aside from the, that cultural relevance of like, oh, that stuff still happens or used to happen even while I've been alive, is he said they would go in with like 10 mics and mic up the entire session and record 10 to 12 hours to tape straight. Uh -huh. And then they would take it back to LA or wherever they were and they'd actually listen through it and try to cut together songs and make albums out of that. That's cool. And so I think at the purest form, the reason why recorded music exists is because they want to bring what happens in the room to as many people as possible. Yes, that's right. So that's think, how recordings, that's the point of recordings originally here. at least. Yeah. yeah, it started first on stage and some dude named Matt Carter who knew how to record said, oh my God, I just saw under a roof and they blew my mind. I got to get this out to more people, yeah. but I can't clone them, clone their music. So let's do that. And that's kind yeah. of the thought problem. Yeah, but is it reasonable... Is it reasonable philosophically for me growing up in the 90s to say, am I wrong or is it okay yeah. for me to say, you know, the, the, the audio recording master is primary? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I think at, at this point it has switched. I mean, now you don't get to go on tour and play to people unless you have a great record. Uh -huh. So now we've taken the thing that was a, a means to an end to get this beautiful, raw thing live recorded in a basement somewhere out. Mm -hmm to there's a lot of science mm -hmm. but there's sorry there's a lot of science to really like work through um you know what that looks like in the sense of now we're deconstructing songs and we know that if we don't get to the chorus in this key by this time in the song you're going to lose attention and if you keep people's attention they're going to come to the show and you're going to make a bunch of money so you have all these like watered down songs out right now and i think that yeah i agree that now it's all about the recorded music and the written music and people are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on co-writers and producers and mixers so that they can get people's attention to come see them. And then you have bands like Let Live that really work hard at their records, but I don't know that they care that much because mm -hmm. they know as soon as they walk on stage, anyone from any magazine that was there is going to be like, holy shit. And then they're going to get another tour. And so there are still good live bands that record because they have to. Yeah. Um, but I think they're few and far between now. I think it's more about putting out the right record. Do we have the right songs um, and all of that? And so it's, it's, it's very tough to see that switch, but it works. And that's just the way we live. And it's not a good or bad thing. It's just the way it is. Yeah, I think I'm on the train of exploring the organic more than I ever have before. I mean, because I was always into recordings. I like Nirvana's Nevermind just the way it is. And as soon as it came out, Kurt Cobain was saying it was overproduced. And I was so bummed out as a, whatever, 14-year-old or something. I loved it. I just couldn't, I thought it was the perfect thing exactly, no matter what. And them live was okay. And I had all their bootlegs. I would go to record stores to find their bootlegs. It was way before internet and everything. And I didn't like it as good, but I thought that was really cool. And I unfortunately never got to see Nirvana play. But... Um, um, but I liked it, but he was saying it was overproduced, and I've always had attention yeah. with that, and I've always tried to learn to produce and record, and I've taken that to its extremes. I mean, you've seen me play on tour with no amp, and I've edited 
every <laughs> note of a guitar before. I've I've done every type of tracking and I've gone through that at the same time that a other bunch of people, other people in culture have too, to where I, I reached a point a few four or five years three or four or five years ago where I was like, I can't even do this anymore. This sounds ridiculous. It just sounds so silly to make everything sound so good. I just don't like I just took I feel like I took the medium as far as either I could go or it could go. And along sure. with everybody else getting so good at recording so cheaply and it just I've just lost interest in it and knew I couldn't continue down that path. So now I, I like we even re went back and built our live set and I've got my guitar amp and rig, the stuff that I haven't cared about in years. I'm getting back into gear and I'm gonna record this next record. I'm just gonna put a microphone in front of my amp and I will not think about it other I, I know what my what I'm gonna play and I'm going to put a microphone in front of it and that's that's all that's gonna be. I'm not doing anything other than that. So for sure. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I think that that's cool, man. I think that, you know, uh, I think uh, Kurt Cobain's ethos was like, if I'm playing guitar and I'm the only guitar player, then I don't want a double guitar. Anymore. Right. Yeah. You know? And it's yeah. like, you're, you've already overproduced it. And I think yep. that's a little extreme, but I love the punkness of that. I think what we see now is like your MacBook Pro is the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth member of your band. Yeah, right, right. At that point, it's like, well, man, that's a bummer. Um, but you know what? It's also not, it's just, it's for rock bands. I think it's different. I think rock bands should still be rock bands, but I think for EDM, hip hop, electronic, indie, stuff like that, hard, hard auto-tune vocals or, um, you know, chopped up drum samples that are made to do things that a real drummer could never do. Sure. I think there is an art and I love the freedom of that. I just think for rock, um, that's why you gravitate towards them crooked vultures and Jack White and Foo Fighters because they spend a lot of time on their music, I'm sure, but it feels real like someone played it. And I think that that's what we're missing. Mm, let me see if I can go a, d a deeper level of what's behind that. So to me, it, certainly you can't accuse the technology of being a problem. Electric guitars, technology, whatever. You know what I mean? Guitar sure. itself is technology. So it's, it cannot be a technological thing. It's an art thing. And so art being a subjective thing, the way I think about art philosophically is that it is... Uh, I think that all art, and maybe I'm not haven't thought it through, but is is uh, high level exclusive decision making. That's what art is. You have you have chosen a thing that is inherently risky and at the and exclusive to all other choices, and then it can have the, out of that is arises a style and a collection of those decisions. So what you're doing by screaming is making a statement or doing something and you're doing something as let's say as screaming originated or started to become prevalent it was a boundary breaking decision that was risky and it was and it is it's, it's a de decision to do that but once those decisions become commonplace they're no longer decisions they're just the way things go and so that therefore you know if you take technology just to make everybody sound the same or in tune for instance, then you've taken you've taken it you've gone the opposite way of art. But if you take auto tune and make some sound that nobody else is making and it sounds crazy and weird, well, good for you because you're making this, doing high level decision making at the exclusion of other stuff or running the risk of sounding auto tune or cheesy yeah. or like a computer. You know, you you you've put yourself into a vulnerable territory, and that has to be what art is about. I think. Yeah, I think that, I think so too, and I think that you know. There is a correlation between success and ratio of art. Um, I think that there is like a, a large portion of manufactured music. Like I love the idea of a song, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, un Under Oath back on tour and 
you know, everyone keeps asking us, what are you going to do with your new music? Are you going to do new music? We're like, dude, like, we're just on tour. We're chilling. We're doing our thing. We'll figure it out. Um, but the one thing that's really prevalent now is like co-writing and songwriters, mm -hmm. which has always been prevalent in other scenes. It's just weird that it's prevalent in our scene now. Um, but what's happened is like, there's now, it's similar to like women, right? Like there's now a, a, an industry standard for what a song should look like. It's a size two, it has blonde hair, big boobs, uh -huh. you know, bright red lips, and that's what a song should be. Mm -hmm. And then you have all these other artists that are just different and interesting looking or maybe have some scars or whatever. And there's this kind of like, oh, that's just not a good song. That's a bad artist. Like he played yeah. that art for four minutes straight. Like he just doesn't understand structure. And I love this like new dialogue that we're thrust into where it's like, if you don't fit in this box, then you're not paid and you're not respected and you're not producing anything worth listening to. Whereas like writing four chord songs is the easy part i think um it's just a weird like you know these songwriting guys are just running around telling people that these are how songs you know um are made and, uh -huh. and, and it's and it's a very almost not even a degrading thing it's just more of like a state of the union where you know i've even had people say like well like you do what you do and then like i'll do like the real songs <laughs> <laughs> and, you know like and, and it's kind of one of those like oh tim doesn't write songs he like feeds back and gets a delay pedal out and like goes on a 10 minute acid trip and then we have to bring it down to four minutes and he thinks that's a song like let's pat him on the back and move him along like we we'll love that young like, arrogant in you know in, ignorant energy and we'll turn it into a product yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's funny that like that's not a song or like Tame Impala, like me and Aaron are fighting about this right now. Like he thinks Tame Impala is the worst thing in the world. Uh -huh. He's like, all the Paramore kids love it. And I'm like, I love it. Like I think Currents is one of the best albums that have come out in the last couple of years. He's like, but you love it for the, he told me I, he lo I love it for the wrong reasons. Uh -huh. He's like, you love it for the wrong reasons. You love it, you love it because it makes you feel a certain way and you get all like sad bastard emo and you think about your feelings. But if you actually stopped and actually listened to the record, you realize like there's not really any songs. Hmm. And it's like, it's a really interesting thing because we have the same conversation a lot of like, is there good and bad art? Like, yes. Is art like, is that is that even up? possible that there's bad art, for instance? Yeah, is, is, it, is everything or bad song. so subjective that you can't objectively say like, this is bad? I think and you I think can. Everyone would say I think you yes. can. And I think that some people would say, the guy who can't sing at a t and is singing at a tune and is playing an out-of-tune guitar off-time, that's a factual bad performance or a bad song if it were to be recorded. Yeah. What you see, though, is like Bob Dylan yeah. and Tom Waits right. and all these guys playing like rough, tough, out-of-key and vibey. And it's like, it's this weird thing where like now people are attracted to the flawed art more because every, every other you know, song on the radio is a bombshell. And like, dude, blonde and like big boobs is over. Like, we don't care. It's not even <laughs> I love it. Anymore. Yeah, blonde you know? and big boobs like, is, I agree with that. I want, I want like a, a girl with like weird eyes and crooked teeth and like curly hair or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, just uh, kind of crooked the song, teeth. You know, and it's like, and I think that like, that's a really, <laughs> really important thing. So it's like, hmm. and, and I've always been attracted to that like my whole life. Like even my wife, like she's, I think she's, beautiful but she's not like a la 
Tesla driving like psycho plastic Barbie, like some of these guys think is cool. She's just a really pretty looking girl. And I think she's Unique. got quirks that I'm attracted to. And that's how I write songs. Like, that's just kind of how my brain works. I don't like perfect anything. Yeah, so, no, it's quirkiness and it's uh, uniqueness are the are two values that I would say are often or mostly are entirely attached to art. But the, okay, so bad song is there such thing as a bad song? If so, can you? I mean, somebody will say they like that bad thing that's obviously bad, like an unskilled person with nothing to say. Of course, that's not good. I mean, somebody in a prison somewhere may hear it that's in solitary confinement and they may think it's beautiful because it's a human, you know, of course that's possible, but I, it's easy to identify an untalented person uh, doing a bad thing that's not inspired and say it's not good. I think that's totally acceptable, but I would I want to say it on another front. You tell me if this is true and then we'll go farther. <laughs> What about the music that you hear in, let's say, American Eagle or The Gap? And it sounds like pop music you hear on the radio, except for it is not. But in by every ostensible way, it sounds like a radio song, but you know it's just license-free or paid-for licensed music to play in that store. Yeah. I would like to what? say that is not art or it's bad art or it's inherently not good. I would like to say that. What would you yeah, say? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I think I err on the side of like, you know, there's two things. So subjectivity, right? So subjectivity is if one person likes it, then it is now valid and it becomes good and liked by someone somewhere. Um, I like to associate it's like food, right? So my argument is there is good and bad food. Facts. McDonald's will actually kill you. Disagree. Soda will actually <laughs> kill you. There's a ton of people that love it. I love it. Hand over heart say it's the best food they've ever had. So in a subjective music conversation, McDonald's actually isn't bad at all. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's totally fantastic. It's just not for me. It's but it's but it's no less than the vegan food I ate yesterday that's actually scientifically healthy and going to make me live longer. So I mean, I think you have to have the conversation of how do people consume music and is it art and does it affect and touch other parts of your body and psyche and mind and headspace? Or is it only 45 minutes in, 45 minutes out, and you're unchanged forever? And I think that like, if if I consumed country all day long for a year, I'd probably see you on this podcast next year with a cowboy hat dipping, uh -huh. right? Because music isn't just I like it or I don't or the chords are off. It's literally something, at least for me, wow. that like affects my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I choose to eat raw and real art uh -huh. because I want to be healthy artistically. Is it sometimes easier to just naturally get sucked into the next Taylor Swift single on the radio? Of course it is. She didn't write it. Some genius 45 year old dude who knows exactly what to do to you at the right time to keep you locked in and want you to keep going back to it constructed that song. So it's like, I don't consider that. That doesn't make it bad, though, does it? Like, bad, uh, it doesn't. No, I think it's a difference between music and art. Uh -huh. and, I, and going back to, to Luke, what I was just saying is where I ended with Chris and, and Aaron and our crew was really funny is like, I get it. All music is subjective, but all music just isn't art. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's kind of where I land. It's like the stuff that you hear at Gap or Rule or Forever 21 or wherever you're talking about in the mall, like, it's not art, it's just, but it is music because there's something, it's vibrating a speaker. So yeah. someone could like it because it's just, yeah. da, da, da. and it's like, 
that's going to brighten someone's day probably. So yeah, that music isn't bad or good. It's just there, but it's sure as hell is an art. And so I think that's more where I go is I don't really like listening to music. I like listening to art. And so do I have guilty pleasures? Can I rage out to, you know, uh, I don't even know Taylor Swift. My kids love Taylor Swift or Britney Spears toxic. Like, yeah, those are great written songs. They're not art though. They're a streamlined, perfectly made product. Mm-hmm. And I don't like products. I like, I like art. So yeah. Double. I mean, that gets um, gray at some point. There's some place where you have to cross over and say rage against the machine is a product and not art or whatever. And I, I know where you and I divide specifically, but I'd like to, so I, I guess you would say, Maybe there's maybe that's a bad song, but I know where you and I divide specifically because we have the conversation a hundred times. It seems like everybody in Under Oath and everybody in Emory divides over the issue of is Metallica good or not. <laughs> yeah, and I say they are awesome. Yeah, and y'all don't like Metallica, which is average. mind blowing. Yeah, Metallica is awesome at being average. I like <laughs> no, they're the best. They're Metallica. They, the they invented the stuff. They pushed the boundaries. And I'm not saying the late Metallica records, but Master of Puppets, the Through the Black album. It's just monumental, groundbreaking, amazing oh, art, great I songs, agree. performance, energy. I love it so much. And you don't? Yeah. And I, I, I know I've never, I've never owned a Metallica record in my life. And Crazy. I listen to them and can't get through it. It's like eating broccoli. As a two-year-old, even in the late I, '90s, you didn't hear Inner Sandman or nothing else matters and like it, yeah, 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 or yeah. what? Yeah, I remember those songs on MTV and like jamming them. But it was also the same time that like you had Nirvana and Wu Tang Clan, and I was just kind of like smashing pumpkins. I'm like, oh, that's cooler. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've always just been that like an emo-ish kid. So you don't think, is, is there a difference in Smashing Pumpkins and Metallica uh, uh, product art-wise, or is it just your preference there? I think that's just a preference. I think okay. in reality, I don't like Metallica, but I, I couldn't in, in good conscience say that band actually sucks. You know what okay. I mean? Um, like, for some reason... I'm sure I've heard you like, say those exact words before, but you were just making a point. <laughs> no, I mean, Metallica does suck. Okay, okay, good, okay. But they don't actually factually suck. They subjectively right. suck. Um, Fair enough. I don't think they're a, a, a factual bad band. Then you have other bands you're like, dog, that is, I don't care if a million people like that, that is garbage. Can you name one of those? Um, no. Uh, I mean. That's fine if you don't got one. Yeah, I can't. But like, like, for instance, another layer of that is context, right? So like. The more you know about a song and the artist, the more you're inclined to connect with the song, whether it be good or not. Mm-hmm. Case in point, me and Chris, our keyboard player, are listening to uh, this podcast called Song Exploder. Yep. And it's actually very similar to something we were talking about. And then we found it. We were like, oh, crap, it's already happening. 15-minute um, episodes, 10-minute interview with the artist talking about every single stem. They have Bjork. They have Wilco. They have yeah. Youth Lagoon. They've got... Joey Badass, all this stuff, right? Um, every spectrum, and they tell you how and why, and they pick one song, and they go through the whole thing, and then the last five minutes of the podcast are them playing mm-hmm. the song that they've been discussing and dissecting, or exploding, as they would say. And then Chris got through all the artists that he knew, started listening to artists that he didn't. And I said, Chris, how many times have you gotten to the end of a podcast of, of, of a band that you normally wouldn't like or listen to on that podcast and not love the song. He's like, yeah. 100 for 100, when yeah. I hear yeah. the story, 
mm-hmm. I'm already in on yes. first snow. That's a great insight. And I yeah. think that 21 Pilots is a really good example of that for me personally. I've always known the band's huge. I've heard their songs. I've never much liked them. I've never hated them. I just never really liked them or felt like I needed to listen to them. Went and saw them live and I just now you get it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. No, that's totally I, true. The same effect happens with books. That's why I think books is such a crazy medium because you've given yourself to this guy for, I don't know, 12, eight hours now, and, and you're going to hear in his voice say his point of view for eight hours. I mean, you, you, you never finish a book and go like, that was goofy. <laughs> you just don't do that. You're, exactly. You already pre-selected what you wanted to be told, and then you gave yourself to the person, and then you gave them hours. So it's, al- it's almost always going to work if you can get if, you know, somebody to yeah. read your book. And I mean, I think that that's like something we're going to you know, explore with you know, even Andy, like Minio, who I work for. It's like we're, we have new music at some point, and it's like how can we shed light on where each of these songs came from? Because as soon as we connect someone to the song from a DNA level – they're going to love it and it's going to like hit them and it's going to stick with them. And it's not going to be <coughs> something that's on a stream list for a week and then goes away. And, you know, some of that's strategic and marketing and, you know, longevity from a career standpoint. But the other side of it is just, I want people to understand what we're talking about here yeah. as an artist, as a collective that represents an artist. It's like these songs are so deep. And if you don't listen, like really listen and hear, you're just going to miss it. I yep. mean, Kendrick Lamar, Good Bad Cities is the perfect example. There's people in the club <clears throat> getting hammered every night to wake up, drink, Asia, drink, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, that song is literally about not doing that. But the hook <laughs> is a yeah, party hook. That's right. It's like, oh shit, round of shots. And it's like, if there was a, even a 30 minute documentary and he took 10 songs and spent three minutes on each song and just bam, 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 bam. I bet that record would change meaning for everyone that has listened to it a thousand times. Yeah, they would give it and their it, time and attention to get to connect with and, it. And yeah. they would understand the nuances because yeah. like he's saying things that are so nuanced and it's not so blunt. And that's why blunt basic music works. That's yeah. why bad music and bad pop music are the thing. Because you say the thing and people don't have to think. They can just jump in the river because the tide's so fast and just have a fun ride and not have to work for it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's tough. Yeah, Tim, you're good. You're good at this. I've enjoyed talking to you today. Let's do it. We'll do it. Uh, we'll do it for the next several weeks here and get through a bunch of topics and uh, music or music philosophy, whatever you want. You can talk about whatever you want to, but uh, oh yeah, you're very popular on this show. It's because you have a good talent uh, verbally. So let's let's keep doing some podcasts together. I'll talk to you next week. For sure. See you guys later. All right. Have a good show tonight. All right. Peace. Hey guys, Devin Shelton here. Let me take just a minute and tell you guys about our company called BC Supply. Now, some of you may already know this, but I play in a band with Matt and Toby called Emery. Since we've been in the band, we have been fortunate enough to have traveled the world many times over. And and I'll tell you what, even though it's amazing, it can take its toll, not only on you, but on your stuff. We spent many years making absolutely no money at all on the road, so we had to buy really cheap stuff, products that were convenient for us, but just not quality or sustainable. With BC Supply, we wanted to offer the same type of products, things we use on a daily basis, but have them be high quality that will be durable, sustainable, and comfortable. We work with small independent companies throughout the U.S. on products like leather wallets and belts, wool beanies, duffel bags, apparel, sunglasses, coffee, and more. And these companies are people who handcraft many of these products themselves. 
So if you're like us and you want products that will last and you're willing to spend a little more money less often, then make sure and check us out at bc.supply. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks With Johnny, streaming everywhere now.